Heavenly Father, we exalt your holy name today. We extol you in your greatness. We celebrate and proclaim and remember your works today, even as we will read them in your scriptures. We thank you so much that you have recorded for us a record of your work in the affairs of men, even men who have despised and hated you and are lost and dead in their sin. And yet you came down, Lord. You intervened. You condescended. You sent your Son as a payment, full and final, for every one of your own who places faith and trust in you. As we open up your Scriptures, I pray that we would be counted among the privileged few, your disciples, whom you said it was given to know the secrets of the kingdom because they had eyes to see and ears to hear. We ask for eyes and ears to perceive the great and deep and profound, magnificent things of God today. And we know if you grant us that ability, we cannot and will not, we trust, boast about it, but only give you the glory for drawing our hearts and our minds and our affections, our confession and our obedience into greater conformity with your holiness and with your word. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray, amen. Praise the Lord for the opportunity to read His Scripture and to think about and meditate on the glories therein contained together for some time this morning, a few moments at least. I'm thankful for what Tim already shared from the first discourse in Matthew, Matthew chapter 6. This morning in a moment I'll ask you to stand, but would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 14? Matthew 14 is the chapter that follows the third discourse in Matthew, which we've been studying recently. While you're turning to Matthew 14, I'll give you a title and a brief description. This morning's message is entitled Kingdom Prospectus. Kingdom Prospectus, a definition for the term prospectus. Prospectus can be a statement or situation that forecasts the nature of something else. And so this morning as we read the two miracles that follow Jesus' great discourse, I would like to make the case from Scripture that these miracles forecast the nature of the kingdom of God. Would you stand with me and let's read Matthew 14 verses 13 and 32 together. Matthew 14 verses 13 through 32. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and take the five loaves and the two, and and taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. 
And they took up 12 basket full, baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Verse 22. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. While he dismissed the crowds, and after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land. Beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them, and in the fourth watch of the night he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Verse 30, But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. You may be seated. This is the word of the Lord. Recently, as we have studied the context of Jesus' parables, Jesus' sermons, and the surrounding record in the gospel, we've made one note that I'd like you to remember today, and that is, in the Gospels, there is a purpose in the context as well as the content of specific things that Jesus spoke about. That is to say, there's a continuity between the events that took place and the message of the kingdom that Jesus audibly, audibly proclaimed. And this, these two ideas go together in such a way that indeed the entire gospel record, all of the events and everything Jesus spoke, is a united and perfect whole declaring to us the kingdom of God in its most fullest and comprehensible form in a way that we can more deeply and fully understand and apply if we remember that the words that are written on the pages before us today are not something like a modern newspaper where you have a basic structure of record of what happened, and then by stream of conscience or by order of priority uh, related to uh, chronology or whatever, you just write what went on. No, in fact, the Gospels are more deep and profound, sophisticated, intricate, and sovereign than that. There is a narrative, imperative continuity in the Gospels. That is to say, the things that Jesus proclaimed And the events that are recorded work together in a continuity to declare some amazing truths to us. So in our own Bible studies, and it's one of my great joys of discovery to look for those times and places in Scripture where more can be discovered if we ask the right questions. Questions like, why did these two miracles, the feeding of the 5,000 and also Jesus walking on the water, Why are they included among the myriad of other miracles that Jesus did? And why do they follow the third discourse where Jesus proclaims by parable and comparison terms of the kingdom of God? So this morning I want to make the case and hopefully whet our appetites for even further study that this is something of a gospel prospectus here. That in the record of events following Jesus' third great discourse, there is between the lines, if you will, a kind of gospel proclamation 
That's very interesting when we take a few factors into view. One is what I just told you. This is not accidentally or incidentally recorded. The second is there are great, thorough, deep, rich, and mysterious prophecies in the Old Testament related to these very words we're reading today. And so Isaiah 53 and following comes to mind in that regard. So you can keep a thumb in Isaiah and we'll be doing some flipping back and forth. But as I mentioned to you, I think we see not only in these two miracles, but also in this record of Herod and his persecution and ultimately the killing of John the Baptist, and even in the response of Jesus' own people, uh, his friends and family from the area where he was from, we see in this record following Jesus' third great discourse something of a gospel prospectus, a statement or situation that forecasts the nature of the gospel. As we apply this narrative imperative, imperative continuity test to these events following the kingdom comparison discourse, we discover perhaps a foreshadowing in events and in miracles of gospel truth that Jesus does not expressly reveal until Matthew 16, 21. Turn forward with me a few pages and read this salient verse with me, Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. That first phrase, those three words, from that time indicates that there's a shift in Jesus' instruction to His disciples. From this time in Matthew 16, 21 forward, He begins to expressly, clearly lay out the things that He must suffer. And the call to the cross and Calvary, His death and resurrection as a payment for the sins of His disciples. This is surprising to the disciples, but it hasn't been, I'm arguing this morning, the first time the idea, at least, in seed form or in implicit form is, has been presented in their experience. Because when we turn back to Matthew 14, we read of the death of one whose disciples were very concerned and we allusion to a resurrection and we read of a prophet who is despised and those in his own hometown who took offense at him. Thus, when we find in this gospel that this string of events plays a role in declaring the truth of what Jesus would do, it deepens our appreciation and understanding for the Christocentric, that is the Christ-centered and Christ-themed narrative of the gospel and indeed all of Scripture. This string of events on the heels of Jesus' parables is thoroughly saturated with prophetic illusion, these ideas that remind us of greater truths and greater redemptive concepts, and also prophetic fulfillment. So a heading to try to organize a few of these thoughts this morning would perhaps be the gospel between the lines in Matthew 14. The gospel between the lines in Matthew 14. In three ways, I hope we can see it today. Number one, we can see between the lines a message of the suffering servant and prophet, Jesus Christ. Number two, we can see a concept of sustenance through desolation. Even though there are desolate circumstances, 
There are desolate circumstances that we see specifically in the feeding of the 5,000. There is also supply. And then thirdly, salvation from judgment. These events, these circumstances, this narrative is preaching to us the gospel. First of all, we didn't read these verses yet, but let me remind you of them in the end of Matthew 13, 53. Read with me. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? 57, and they, mind you, these are his friends and family, they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. And then chapter 14 picks up with this narrative about the plight of John the Baptist, the precursor to Jesus' own ministry. It says, verse 1, At the time Herod the Tetrarch heard of the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, that is to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. So the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother, and his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. Then in verse 13, now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Turn back with me to the Old Testament and let's explore first this narrative and these events in light of an Isaiah connection. Isaiah chapter 53. Far and away, for myself anyway, the most helpful reference point in the Old Testament of messianic prophecy. The nature of Jesus' work and ministry is revealed in such salient and clear and striking, dramatic, beautiful form in Isaiah 53. But as we read these familiar words, let's consider them in light of these events that are following Jesus' ministry. Verse 1, Who has believed what they have heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He, speaking prophetically of the Messiah, in Old Testament language was, verse 3, despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Do you see how between the lines the message of the suffering servant 
and rejected prophet is coming to the fore in the very actions that Jesus' closest associates take against him. Who was this one Isaiah prophesied? Of whom it was said, many would turn away and take offense at him. Well, we've just read Matthew 13, 53, that when he went to his hometown, verse 54, and taught them in their synagogue, they were astonished. They saw his words. They saw his wisdom. But what was their response? Verse 55, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? In verse 57, they took offense at him. Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his household. You see the fulfillment of Isaiah's very words unfolding before the disciples' very eyes. If they indeed had eyes to see and ears to hear, they would know that the unpopularity of Jesus' ministry was in fact by sovereign, prophetic, fulfilling design. I'm sure there are many on just a human level who might have been discouraged at this point, and those who did not have ears to hear, I'm sure, and the Bible records, would fall away. They were looking for a different type of Messiah, a different type of war hero, conquering figure, head of their historical plight, their economic futures, their political salvation, and so on. But if they had been attentive to the words of old, the inscripturated, prophetic, inarguable, unchanging, effective, declared truth and creeds, the things that God had encoded within even the Hebrew culture, they could have known. The Holy Spirit could have drawn their attention to see that this man who was being rejected in his hometown was fulfilling the very prophetic conditions that the prophet of old had spoken about. He would be despised and rejected by men. He would be a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. After Jesus heard about the death of the one of whom he said no greater prophet had preexisted, John the Baptist, when he heard of his death by Herod's tyrannical hand, he heard this, drew away from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. And we can imagine the environment of Jesus' own suffering alone on the lonely mountain with God his Father as the tears streamed down his face. As he became the man prophesied of old who was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, loss, and despair and desolation. The suffering servant and prophet that Isaiah prophesied would come is spoken of clearly, clearly within the events that unfold after Jesus delivers his message. And thus it ought to condition our ears and the disciples as well that when he expressly declares in Matthew 16, 21 to show the disciples the things that he must suffer, maybe a light bulb would go off in their head. Oh, we see that that has already begun to take place. And thus, we move beyond the Isaiah connection to recognize if it is true that indeed Jesus has come to suffer and die, to seek and to save that which was lost. If he knew and declared in advance that he would go to the cross, that he would suffer and be killed and rise again, then the stage for this event must indeed be set. The pieces by God's sovereign hand must indeed be in place. Now, after the Holy Spirit revealed it to their hearts, 
The disciples certainly knew this. It was still dawning on them at this time. There were many times they would scratch their head until that moment of Pentecost where more pieces than ever before fell into place. But after Pentecost, when the disciples were praying in Acts chapter 4, they recognized that these events that had taken place at this time were by the sovereign hand of God. For truly, it says in verse 27, they're praying now, the disciples confessing the truths of God, in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, among the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. In verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. There is a confession of a sovereign setting of the stage for the work of redemption, and we see the curtains moving back, the props, if you will, put in place, the characters aligned, even in this record. We begin to see the first waves of unpopularity and attitudes of Jesus' followers turning against him. We see Herod rearing once again his ugly head and presenting himself as a formidable obstacle to the work of Christ. But indeed, we see from greater scripture, he himself was a pawn in this glorious plan. Indeed, where Jesus Christ would be unjustly condemned, but in his unjust death, God the Father would confer onto him the sins of everyone who would be justified by his blood, and he would be that suffering and sacrifice servant for us. So there's an Isaiah connection here. There's a setting of the stage that is taking place, and there are indeed Calvary illusions, cross illusions through this entire record. Notice if you, with me if you haven't already, these times in the record that very interesting details come to the fore. First of all, they took offense at him in verse 57. They took offense at him, but Jesus said, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And this would again take its fullest and manifest and most dramatic form at the cross when those who took offense at him would eventually nail his hands and his feet to that piece of wood and he would be crucified for our sins. Later it says, and this is highly interesting, from the mouth of Herod, why would it be drawn to his attention? Why would the thought even cross his mind that Jesus, of whom he had heard these rumors, and in fact, they're now substantiated in his ears, all these miraculous things, why would it cross his mind that this is John the Baptist resurrected? As we read in verse 2 of 14, and he said to his servants, Herod speaking, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. I submit to you that there is something of an allusion to a future event that in spite of Herod's own animosity and enmity against the will and work of God, he himself is voicing things that are recorded here that are preparing us for future events. Later we see as we continue to read, that John the Baptist himself is put to death unjustly at the hand of Herod. And what happens to his body and what happens to his disciples? Verse 12, his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. And so you see these Calvary illusions. There was a death of a prophet. There was a sus- suspicion that, there would be a re- that this was a re- of a resurrection of the dead. 
There was events that were taking place, transpiring here, that remind us of the cross. And I'm only saying to you that these events are recorded with purpose. That we start to see gospel imagery and details coming forward that tell us that God is the sovereign architect of events and history. And no passing comment, no glib statement escapes the lips of anyone without the sovereign dictation and permission of God Almighty. We see this in the Gospels. Unbeknownst to him, the high priest prophesied that one man would die for the sins of many. What controlled his tongue and why was that prophetic utterance delivered from one who had no idea, no earthly idea in his own reasoning and consciousness of the significance of the events that were unfolding before him? It is because a sovereign God was setting the stage for a mighty work and God will be glorified from rocks crying out to trees praising his name to the ungodly inadvertently serving his greater good and purposes and uttering such things as, oh, maybe this is a resurrection of the dead. Or he, that is Herod, takes his animosity out against this man John the Baptist and his disciples then come to Christ and we have this record of somebody dying that had an important message And we look forward to the future of what that might mean as Jesus Christ himself dies, but this death actually being one who can purchase the resurrection of John the Baptist and everyone else who is in Christ. And fourthly, in this suffering and servant and prophet analogies and illusions that we see coming forward in this record, there is definitely a kingdom war that is shaping up. There's a clash of true and false authority. There's John the Baptist who's bringing the word of God and there's an illegitimate king that kills him for it. Verse 4, because John had been saying to him, to Herod, it is not lawful by the standard of God's immutable word for Herod to marry this woman. That is why he ultimately gave his head. And here we see a clash of powers and a clash of authorities. And this is a precursor to the greatest clash of all time where Satan and Christ went head to head. The final and most complete fulfillment of the prophecy of the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent drew up arms against one another. And in this clash and in this exchange, the power of the enemy over the future of your soul if you are hid in Jesus Christ was wrenched from his clenched fist by the death of our Savior. And when that clash of authorities met for the final, fullest, and last time in history, it was done. It was finished. Our redemption was paid for, and neither our sins, the enemy's plans, or death itself no longer laid claim on the hold or hold to our souls If we are in Christ. In the past, kings had slaughtered men of God. And they had silenced his voice to some degree. But there was coming a time in the very near near future. In just a matter of days. Where the kingdom would slaughter the man, the son of God. 
And at this time, the word of God would never be silenced. And in fact, it would only serve God's greater purposes. And now the gospel would go forward. And by this very act, redemption would be made for mankind. And Jesus Christ, in his own death and resurrection, would secure the resurrection of John the Baptist. And as the first fruits with his own body and everyone who is a faithful believer and trusts in his blood for their hope and salvation. Point number two, the gospel between the lines in Matthew 14. We've talked about the suffering servant and prophet in the picture of those events. Now let's move to the miracle of the, of the feeding of the 5,000. And perhaps here we see an idea of sustenance and supply being sustained through desolation. Turn with me back to our Old Testament context of Isaiah 54. Again, in the book of Isaiah, as we continue to read from this same section, in an uncanny and detailed and designed fashion, we see the events that the prophet recorded lining up with the record of the gospel in yet another dimension. As we continue in this record, we move from chapter 53 to 54, and we read in verse 1 this message, Sing. O barren one who did not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one are more than the married of her, than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Verse 2, enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back, lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach from your widowhood. You will be from your and your the reproach of your widowhood will be remembered no more. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth, He is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit. Like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. And in this language here of husband to bride and of the desolate widow to the kinsman redeemer and all of that beautiful and covenantal language we see this picture of despair and desolation. For the children of the desolate one will be no more, will be more, I'm sorry, than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. And so there's a calling out to those who are in the forlorn places, in the obscure corners, into the outcast groups, and to those who really don't have a strong confidence or identity or hope, who have been lost, abandoned, and rejected. And time and again in the in Jesus' ministry, he is reaching out to people in these conditions and under these conditions. And I find it interesting, even in the setting where Jesus is breaking bread, multiplying bread, and feeding the thousands, he's doing so in a desolate place with people who are too poor to pack a lunch. He's doing so aligned with his disciples who are not equipped to feed them either. But instead, it is by the sovereign sufficiency and providence of God, by His miraculous care 
that bread is given to these masses that have followed him. Even though they're in a wilderness, their situation, immediately speaking, is indeed desolate. And they will go hungry unless there is supply. There's more language in Isaiah that speaks to concepts like this. Notice in verse 55, the very next chapter, verse 1. Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. And again, we're reminded that the disciples did not have money to buy food to feed these thousands, yet food was provided by the miraculous hand of the Redeemer. More language in verse 10 and 11, which compares the supply of the Messiah to spiritual food. It says, For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, make it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And so here we have the Isaiah connection in this miracle as well. Jesus Christ is showing by this miracle that He is the Messiah who will and can supply our every need. In a desolate place, in a desperate situation, bread and fish flourish and multiply to feed and then some thousands and thousands of people. And so it is with everything our Savior is anointed to supply. And so it is in your desolate spiritual condition. The abundance of joy in Christ, for instance, can fill and overflow the forlorn soul who finds himself grieving after the loss of a close friend. For the joy of the Lord is our strength. Jesus says, it is good for me to go away. Why? Because the one who miraculously showed he had the power of supply within and of his being will provide you a comforter, the Holy Spirit. And what a multiplication of grace is the Holy Spirit inside, indwelling the heart of every believer. Will we ever go spiritually Hungry again? No. There is, as it were, basketfuls of grace left over for those who are in Christ. And this miracle overflows with imagery that teach us about supply in times of desolation. John chapter 6, verse 30 and 35, a very interesting question is brought up. There was memorial moments that God had codified into the culture of the Hebrews, that they were to find their identity and the meaning and hope for the future in. And one of these was in God's mighty works and supplying manna in the wilderness. In John 6.30, this is brought to bear when a question is brought to Christ. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work will you perform or do you perform? Verse 31, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, 
It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to Him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The feeding of the thousands, the meaning, undergirding the significance of this miracle in this moment, the gospel between the lines is indeed never better said than that statement from Christ himself, I am the bread of life. God supplied manna in the wilderness, in the wanderings according to His covenant with His people to supply in the desolate places. And so God has shown Himself in His Son to supply even the physical needs of the people in this miracle as down payment, as proof positive, as a sign eternal that He will supply bread for the famished, thirsty, dying soul. And that bread is Jesus Christ Himself. And that final picture in the Gospels, as we flash forward to Matthew 26, 26 through 29, 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 24, what do we see Christ doing? We see Him breaking bread once again and supplying it in a time of desolate circumstances. But what do we see Him saying at this more full revelation of the meaning of this previous event? This is my body that is broken for you. Take, eat in remembrance of me. This is my blood that is poured out for you. Take, drink in remembrance of me. I am the source, the sustenance for the desolation of the soul. And I will finally and fully supply the lack of your heart in overflowing abundance to fulfill all I have prepared and called my disciples for. Sustained through these times of desolation with a glorious example of Jesus' power to do so that we see between the lines in the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. Point number three. In this message of kingdom prospectus, we move to salvation from judgment. Salvation from judgment. Where do we see the gospel between the lines of this record? And I want to read it again fully for you so that it's fresh in our minds and we can try to understand some of the intricate and amazing prophetic details therein contained. Matthew 14, 22 through 33. Now after the feeding of the 5,000, we have this word, immediately. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But the disciples saw him, but when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. 
Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. There are two Old Testament connections that I want to draw your attention to. First of all, again in our text of Isaiah 53 and the following chapters, we have messianic imagery, this poetic, prophetic form detailing to us aspects of the Messiah's ministry that we see gloriously fulfilled in that event, walking on the sea, that miracle that we just read. In Isaiah 54, verse 8, listen to this language the prophet uses to describe conditions in the future under the reign of the Messiah. He says, in overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, I have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you, for the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed. Thus says the Lord, who has compassion on you. O afflicted one, verse 11, storm-tossed and not comforted, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncles and All your wall of precious stones, all your children shall be taught of the Lord. Great shall be the peace of your children, and righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. Verse 15, if anyone stirs up strife, it is not for me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you, because I have created the smith who blows coals of fire and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravenger to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed and you shall confute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me declares the Lord. Part of the heritage of those among his chosen, his covenant, his elect people Part of that heritage, which will prove a vindication by the mighty and sovereign hand of the Lord, is a rescue from the judgment waters of Noah and comfort for the storm-tossed afflicted. And so we see in Isaiah this language of judgment related to chaotic and tumultuous waters being language that poetically describes the conditions that the Messiah will step into, be Lord over, and provide salvation from. This picture of Christ reaching for the hand of His disciple in the waters 
Uh, and the commotion of the storm at sea is a picture of salvation from the waters of judgment. Turn with me to Psalm 29. While you're turning there, let me give you a brief editorial comment. There have been in the inerrancy of the, the notion of the inerrancy of the Word of God in churches that had previously confessed and staked their very essence of their fact that they were a church on the inerrancy of the Word of God has fallen on hard times in recent centuries. And to this day, at any given time, you can get on the internet and you can find a hundred, a thousand, maybe tens of thousands of naysayers who want to cast every seed of doubt they possibly can like poisonous, like a poisonous smear campaign into the heart and mind of a believer to make you question the miraculous nature of the Word of God. I've listened to uh, pastors tell of areas where they served, where come to find out, or churches where they served, where come to find out, the Sunday school teacher was telling all the students that at the crossing of the Red Sea, the lake was likely eight inches deep in a swampy area. And thus he thought he was setting the Bible free from claims that couldn't possibly be true. This has to be an archaic mind, this has to be a primitive mind describing something they can't understand by coming up with fanciful mythical theories. Well, I'm telling you what, if Jesus Christ does not have the power of the miraculous at his disposal, and if he did not evidence it in the course of his life and ministry, then he indeed should not be trusted as the Messiah and is indeed not divine. The cross, the work of, every, of redemption itself, the nature and character of Christ, all of the Christian faith, our hope eternal hinges on the supernatural. If there is no God, there is no supernatural. But if there is a God, there is supernatural. But the Bible doesn't just make the claim that there is the supernatural. The Bible is extremely and pointedly and redemptively and informationally, if you will, specific as to the supernatural quality and character of the works of God. So when you see the record of Jesus walking on the seas, it is not only just to strengthen your faith and bolster your own apologetic against the naysayers, it is not only a fact that he walked on physical water supernaturally. It is also a fact that in walking on water, he demonstrated that he is Lord over final and full judgment that our sins otherwise deserve. You see, there was an ark that bore eight people that floated on the surface of a world covered in a deluge. This ark, as it were, walked on the water by the supernatural hand of God. A physical ark was created, but instructions were given supernaturally to do so. And underneath that ark was the hand of Almighty God protecting it from demise. And in that ark were eight who would repopulate the earth and indeed would be responsible for the lineage of the Messiah who would come and who would be our ark and who would walk on the waters. And all who are in Him walk across the waters of judgment to eternal life. And if you deny His power to walk on the water, then there is no hope for safe passage to eternal life. There is no message of the gospel anymore. There's only fable, myth, and, story, and, and fanciful stories. 
And we ought to reject that notion outright and stake our life's claim on the fact that this Bible, cover to cover, is infallibly true. And Christ walked on the water in, the, in so doing, He walked across the waters of judgment for you and me. And thank God for His grace to reach down into those waters and to grab us, even when we are faithless, and to set us back in Himself, in the ark Christ again, as He did with Peter. In Psalm 29, we read about the powerful imagery of water related to this world and the Word of God. Psalm 29.1 is a call to worship because the Lord is Lord over the tumultuous sea. We read, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. <coughs> ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. At the beginning of this song, the opening refrain is a call to worship. Ascribe to the Lord glory due His name. Join in one accord with voices fueled with the zeal of understanding that God is Lord, that Yahweh rules. And to what does He give evidence to Yahweh's great force and power and majesty and might. Listen as we continue to read verse 3. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness, shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in His temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as King forever. May the Lord give strength to His people. May the Lord bless His people with peace. After reading those references, the old covenant glorious language of God's definite power over all creation and His demonstrating to His people as such in His control over the most chaotic, tumultuous forces of nature, let me ask you this question. How do you suppose it sounded when the voice of Christ echoed over the waters? How do you suppose it looked when He approached those who were sinking in the sea of judgment and despair in this picture when He comes up to them? As we read in verse 24, this boat by this time was a long way from land, beaten by waves, for the wind was against them, and in the fourth watch of the night He came to them walking on the sea. But the disciples saw him walking on the sea and were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. When that voice rang out over the stormy seas, I submit to you it was the voice that could crack a cedar in two. The disciples continued to be afraid. In fact, Mark's gospel records that this event was not such that it was designed to coddle and to hold 
in a kind of rockabye fashion all of these freaked out and panicking disciples. But instead, this was a declaration of the power, the glory, the nature, and the identity of the Messiah that associated him with Yahweh of old, who is the voice over the waters, who commands the thunder and lightning, breaks the cedars in half, sparks earthquakes by the dulcet tones of, the, of his own sovereign echo, and causes all the nations of the earth to bow before him and everything in creation to sing praises to his holy name because he is lord over chaos of the sea over the chaos of the seas the voice over the waters in Matthew chapter 14 is a fulfillment of the voice of the wa- over the waters in Psalm 29 And the sea and the waters in Old Testament imagery, as I mentioned, represents those unruly forces of judgment. Those forces that we see pictured in Noah's flood and the implication is that there is a universal judgment that will swallow every power, every force, every king, and every nation on this earth. But there is one king, there is one Messiah who rules over the waters of judgment. And these waters, this universal biblical metaphor for tragedy, are ruled and superseded by one and only one, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who speaks a word and calms the storm, and who speaks a word and ignites a storm. The redemptive historical significance of miracle moves far beyond just admitting that the supernatural is true. Even more, it is not merely supernatural. It is specific and revelatory, and it is fulfillment of the language of old. As we read between the lines, the gospel and Matthew chapter 14, we see in Jesus walking on the water salvation from judgment. There's a sweeping picture of power, but there's also the personal touch. And I'll close with this. I love the fact that in this picture, we have both the power, the proclamation. We have the elements. We have the Lord walking on the seas. We have the stunning realization. We have the fear and the emotion that is, if they weren't afraid of the storm already, causing the disciples to shudder. What are the implications of this? Is it a ghost? What is this apparition walking on the sea? I love that we have that amazing picture and we have this personal touch. Verse 29, Jesus said to Peter, come, when Peter asked to join him on the seas. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him saying, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And in this picture of Jesus' interaction, saving from the waters of judgment, and symbolically Peter, by this action, we see pictured the future of Jesus' relationship to Peter that would unfold in the coming days. Peter would struggle He would sink for a moment, and Jesus prophesied that it would be so. But Jesus Christ had died for Peter, and he said, Peter, basically, paraphrasing, when I'm finished with you, you will not sink beneath the seas, but you will indeed be one that I will consider and build as a rock, my church. 
a man who faithlessly sunk in the seas, who faithlessly denied his Lord, is perfected in Christ by his sovereign grace. He's redeemed, he's regenerate, and then he's sanctified, and he's brought into the kingdom for purposes of foundation. A man who is blown about by the winds of doctrine and seas before, and by emotion and impetuous nature, is now one who stands in the lineage of our own orthodoxy today who brought the apostolic record of Jesus' own words forward in his writings and his commitment and faithfulness to the Lord. And so we see the power of this salvation from judgment, not just being insurance for the end of life when we stand before the throne of God, but being the assurance that in the meantime, God can take a wavering soul, one who would be least qualified to be a figurehead for the gospel, and he can set their feet on a rock and sovereignly save them, regenerate them, and they can become a powerful means to promote His truth this world over. In closing this morning, what should be our response to the gospel between the lines in Matthew chapters 13 and 14? Our response, I submit to you, should be the same as Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord glory and praise. Ascribe to the Lord worship do His name. After all, He is sovereign over the seas. And what did the disciples do? Verse 32, when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped Him, saying, Truly, You are the Son of God. And this was a magnificent, awakening, revelatory moment for the disciples. To move from, this is our rabbi and teacher, to worship the Son of God, was a quantum leap unimaginable to the unenlightened Jew. These were those set apart by God's will and intentions, who sovereignly saw His miraculous power, whose eyes were opened, whose ears were loosed, and they confessed in that moment what they ought. Glory, praise, worship be to God the Son who controls the seas and offers salvation from judgment. The appropriate response to the revelation of Christ in His Word is a fearful, joyful, reverent, confessionally sound worship of Jesus Christ, Almighty God, and the Son of Man, crucified for our transgressions. May we join the heavenly beings in Psalm 29 and the disciples in Matthew 14 in ascribing to the Lord, to Christ, strength, glory to His name, in the splendor of holiness. Amen. Let's close in prayer. O Heavenly Father, we worship and adore You this morning. We see in the record of Scripture the glories of our Lord Jesus Christ revealed. We long to be perfected in our understanding so that we might be moved to more consistent and meaningful praise, obedience, and overflowing joy and service to your Lordship as a result of what we've heard today. I pray that you would do a mighty work within us to open our eyes, to cause us to see as Peter did, that you and you alone and your strong arm, and that you loved us first and died for us, is our salvation from the waters and the judgment of hell. I praise you, Lord, for awakening every heart who confesses this truth here this morning. And if there are any who remain blinded and clouded by sin, I pray that the Holy Spirit would reach down 
his hand as it were, and grasp theirs before they sink into hell eternal and set them upon their rock, Jesus Christ. And may they join us in worship shortly, Lord, and our common call and cause to ascribe glory to the sovereign God for the revelation of yourself in Scripture and through Scripture to our hearts today. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen.